my name is Grant Hovick. I'm a clinical specialist at UCLA's Integrated Substance Abuse Programs. Um, we also have a federal training grant from SAMHSA called the Pacific Southwest Addiction Technology Transfer Center. Um, at UCLA ISAP, we do a lot of research around substance use disorders and co-occurring disorders and treatment interventions. And at the PSATTC, our job is to take that science, to take that research and to share it with providers, to give folks knowledge, information and evidence-based tools and interventions that they can use with their clients who are struggling with substance use disorders and co-occurring mental health conditions. And all the elements that are so important in treatment in particular. Um, so in terms of that training, we uh, cover California, Arizona, Nevada, the Pacific jurisdictions, but also especially locally here in LA County, we've worked really collaboratively with the Department of Mental Health for over a decade now and doing trainings for providers in the DMH systems around when you, when you have clients that are, are using substances in addition to their primary mental health condition, it can be really complex. It can be really difficult to kind of tease out which disorder, how are they affecting each other? Which one came first? Did they develop simultaneously? Did the mental health lead to substance use or vice versa? They're really complex um, series of symptoms that interact and, and affect each other. And so we have a whole series of trainings that we're gonna be offering for you on a couple, a variety of different topics that are related to substance use, and co-occurring mental health conditions. Um, but today in particular, we're gonna start off with a real foundational training about substance use disorders, the fundamentals of how these substances work, how they affect the brain, what are important things for you to be aware of in terms of how they affect mental health functioning, how they affect their, their physical health as well, and a little bit about um, substance use disorders as brain diseases and what are the clinical implications of that. How can you use that to influence your work and, and help you to engage your clients at the end of the day? Here's my goal for all of us here on today's training is we're going to first off talk about substance use disorders as brain diseases. How do they affect the brain? But more importantly, how does that affect treatment and how does that affect the services that you all are providing? So we'll talk a bit about how substance use disorders, what some of the clinical implications of those brain changes are. I'll also kind of show you how it mimics, and there is a lot of parallel and overlap to how some, some mental health conditions can also change the brain in different ways. So we'll talk a little bit about how these brain changes affect both how the clients function, how they function, how that affects their their physical health, their mental health. And then we're gonna talk a little bit about how does that affect how you deliver your services, how you engage people in conversations, how you think about treating the whole person and making the connections between this, the primary mental health conditions and the substance use that's having enormous impacts on their mental health functioning and how that might affect the services that you deliver. Um, so we'll talk a bit, uh, quite a bit about substance use as brain diseases. Then we're gonna talk about just the main category of substances, how they work, just the key fundamentals, how opioids work, how does alcohol work, how does, they affect, how does it affect the brain and the body? And we will finish the training 
with a clinical vignette that kind of pulls all of these pieces together to think about here's a case, here's their functioning, what, what, how might you engage them in a conversation around treatment? Um, again, all of you working at the Department of Mental Health, those mental health conditions are primary, but how can we start to conceptualize how the substance use has direct impacts on their mental health function? What kinds of substance use interventions might help to work towards those, improving those mental health goals? So we'll start, we'll start to build on that conversation at the end of the training, I'll also share with you some of our other trainings that we also offer that help to build on, on what you're learning here today. So that's our goal for today's training. All right. Okay, I've got one other poll, and then we will, um, um, got a couple other conversation points here today. I want you to think about the clients that you work with um, day in and day out. And I know things are so different now and very challenging with COVID, but I want you to think about the clients that you work with. Um, what substances are the most challenging in terms of how they affect treatment? When you think about how substances affect your client's mental health functioning, which substances are the most challenging? Because one of the things that we talk about in our co-occurring training is we start to map the parallel and overlap with our substances, the direct impacts on mental health functioning. Um, it really dig, it digs into that in a lot of detail, but it's really remarkable how all substances of abuse can mimic or exacerbate existing mental health symptoms. Um, but I'm curious from your experiences, what, which are some of the most challenging? All right, Shannon, um, go ahead and share the poll results, please. Yeah, this is very common. This is especially here in LA County and in California, methamphetamine and stimulants is an enormous challenge. We're gonna talk a little bit today about exactly why that is, but especially with the mental health symptoms that it makes worse or mimics. Um, methamphetamine is an incredibly powerful um, substance that has really huge impacts on, on mental health functioning more broadly. And last thing, this one's more open-ended. What would be helpful for you in today's training? Um, you have our topic. We're gonna to talk about substance uses, brain disease. We're gonna talk about our specific substances. What would be helpful for you in today's training that would be helpful in the work that you do? What are you hoping to get um, from today's training? What would be helpful? A review of each substance um, and how they affect the brain. Awesome. We're gonna cover a lot of those fundamentals here today. Um, we're gonna talk a little bit about some of the neurotransmitters that are affected by different substances of abuse and how that affects brain functioning. How does that affect mental health functioning? Awesome, I got you covered there. I'd like to, to learn different interventions to assist in today's training. Today's training is going to start that conversation, and then we're definitely going to build on that in future training. So in our series, we have trainings on cognitive behavioral therapy for substance use. We have a training on um, motivational interviewing that's not specific to substance use, but really it's about co-occurring in, in particular. Um, so we do have some additional trainings that will help to really expand on the discussion about interventions to use. 
we're going to start that today, um, but there will be additional um, trainings that can build on that. So we had impact on physical and mental health. We will talk about how the brain, we will talk a little bit about that today as well, how brains heal, how they can have improvements in functioning. Um, yeah, I'd like to bring that up. We're going to talk about cannabis in, in detail in just a second. That I often find from providers is a really common question. How do you have conversations with your clients about cannabis use? Um, it's legal now. Um, how do you engage your clients in a conversation around its effects and its impacts on them when you have a legal quote unquote substance or even when it's used medicinally? Um, we can talk about that in some detail too. We'll talk about cannabis more broadly. All cannabis has abuse potential, um, especially as it gets more and more potent. The effects can be stronger and stronger. So we, we can expand on that in some detail. Um, so a lot of really great comments in the chat. I'm just kind of scanning through to see if there's any that I've missed. Um, uh, how to address the issue without coming off as judgmental to the person. So awesome. You know, that is another underlying goal in this, our, our training series is really about substance use is surrounded in so much stigma and shame. And that can be a very big barrier for engaging people in care that they need. And so how to try to be how to address some of that stigma in conversations with your clients, how to raise discussions around substance use to try to avoid judgment is another important um, component. Our motivational interviewing training will really dig into that in detail, but we have some of that elements we will definitely cover today. Nice. Um, awesome. Lots of really, really great, great mentions in the chat. A lot of these we're gonna cover this afternoon. Some of these we'll be able to cover in a bit more detail in some of our additional trainings, especially around those intervention pieces, but we'll definitely build a foundation in today's training. All right. So the, the issue around stigma and, and judgment is a good segue for what we are going to talk a little bit about next, because one of the things, one of our goals in, in this training and uh, more broadly is to try to understand what are substance use disorders because historically and and honestly to this day many people think that substance use disorders addiction these are moral problems these are bad people who make bad choices how do you fix a moral problem if someone has bad morals and bad values, and I'm doing all of these in air quotes, how do you fix that? Or historically, how have we tried to fix that? Yeah, so waiting for people to hit bottom. Um, punishment, absolutely. Shame, punishment, incarceration. Um, but if you try to punish your way out of a medical condition, that has biological and social and community and environmental effects, that doesn't solve a medical condition. It doesn't fix a medical condition because addiction is not a moral failing. These are not bad people, but addiction is like other chronic diseases. It 
is there are biological components to addiction. There are social components. There are environmental components as well. So one, and you can't fix those through incarceration punishments here. Um, so we really adopt, we really advocate for the ASAM definition of addiction. ASAM is the American Society of Addiction Medicine. Um, this is one of their um, a definition. Addiction is a treatable chronic medical disease that involves a complex interaction among brain circuits, genetics, the environment, and an individual's life experience. Um, people with addiction uh, with substance use problems engage in behaviors that can become compulsive and often continue despite the harmful consequences. Um, and so we really advocate this view of substance use disorders as chronic medical conditions. And I would argue it's a lot more similar to other chronic medical conditions than it is dissimilar, than it is different. Um, when we think about chronic diseases like diabetes or hypertension, I would argue there's a lot more in common where there are biological components, there are genetic components, but there's also family involvement. There's the neighborhoods where people live, all of those social determinants of health, um, environmental, sociological components to this. So it, addiction is a brain disease, yes, but it's not just a brain disease. There's also a lot of other factors that contribute to it. Um, and <clears throat> um, I just wanna share one, one brief article that came out in the late 90s that really kind of emphasizes, really started to try to change people's mind about what addiction is, how people develop addictions, and how do you fix it? How do you, how do you treat it? Um, and what we really advocate is a public health treatment is a much more effective approach than shame, incarceration, and punishment. The other thing about it is th this can be a little bit controversial sometimes. Not everybody accepts that this neurobiological framework um, um, because sometimes this can challenge people's values of self-determination and personal responsibility. Um, we're not making excuses for people's behaviors or some negative consequences that substance use disorders can lead to. Um, but I would argue, and what we're gonna present coming up next is the science is really clear that there are significant structural and functional changes that happen in the brain that contribute to substance use disorders. There's genetic predispositions that put some people at risk for developing addiction. Other people have protective factors, but then there's also environmental factors, how, where people grow up, the families that they grow up in, they can either be a protective or a risk factor for developing addiction. Um, and so that's really what we're gonna, we're gonna talk about next. Uh, but first off, why do people start using substances in the first place? What are some of the reasons that your clients use substances? To cope, to cope with stress. Um, I'm seeing trauma multiple times in the chat box. Absolutely. Substances are a very common coping mechanism that people with extensive trauma histories use to survive, to get through the day. Um, 
to help manage some of their mental health symptoms that are untreated or undertreated. Um, yeah, absolutely. There's many, um, yeah, trauma's coming up so many times in, in the chat box there. Uh, but also peer pressure too, like Maria is mentioning in the chat. There's social factors as well. When substance use is very common in the neighborhoods where people live or in the schools where they grow up in or in the family environments, their peers can play a big role. Um, and curiosity too. Um, for as long as human beings have been around, human beings have sought ways to alter their thinking and alter their perceptions of the, of the world. Um, so I would argue broadly, boils down to two main categories, to feel good, curiosity, um, experimentation, social pressures. And like many of you are mentioning, and I would argue is a lot more common, is to feel better. There are functional reasons that people use substances to manage mental health symptoms, to, to numb emotional pain, to deal with stressors. Um, and I would argue, especially in the community mental health settings, this tends to be the more common reason that people use in the first place. And clinically, and thinking about treatment, it's really important to try to figure out what these reasons are in the first place. Because if we don't help them find alternative ways of getting their needs met, their likelihood of success in, in overall recovery is going to be impacted. Um, it's really important to try to figure out what these reasons are. Absolutely. And in addition to this, this is really significant and this is, has major impacts. In addition to this, substances also feel very good. And there's really profound reasons for that in the first place. Um, so we're going to highlight in this next section here the uh, substance use as a brain disease. We're going to talk about how use can lead to compulsive behavior, continued use despite the consequences. These are some of our, our hallmarks of substance use disorder. And in just a second, I'll show, I'll show you some of the structural and functional changes that happen in the brain. Because initially, there are choices that are made to start or to begin experimentation or curiosity in substance use in the beginning. Uh, then there are behavioral learning processes that reinforce the substance use. We'll talk more about that in our CBT training, that behavioral learning that contributes to repetition and repeated behaviors. But then eventually the brain changes itself the structural and functional changes that compels a person to continue to use despite the negative consequences that it might, that it might cause for them. So we're gonna highlight that here. What parts of the brain do substances affect? What brain regions do substances affect? The prefrontal cortex, absolutely. And we're gonna spend a lot of time on that one. Yeah, the hippocampus as well, where memory, memory consolidation happens, absolutely. Absolutely, the amygdala, um, the limbic system, 
You're kind of on to me. <laughs> it was a trick question. It was one of those D, like all of the above. It's pretty much the whole darn thing. Now, different substances will affect different regions to different degrees and to different extents. But in a nutshell, it's a lot of it. There's a lot of um, effects on our sensations. And again, those are also substance specific. Some, especially like our hallucinogens, for example, have more direct impacts on like the sensory strip or the, um, the thalamus, which is involved with the integration of the sensory inputs. Um, but then there are all drugs of abuse have some commonalities. Part of those commonalities are its effects on the prefrontal cortex and the reward pathway, which is the amygdala and the limbic system in particular. Um, and especially our depressants, especially alcohol and opioids, they can also affect coordination, um, balance, motor movement as well. Absolutely. So you guys are you're onto my trick there. Um, we'll dig into those in more detail. And different substances will have different neurotransmitters that are involved. I know you've heard all of these before. Um, what we're going to spend a little bit more time on in this particular section is talking about dopamine specifically. Um, dopamine is a really important neurotransmitter in the reward pathway. Now, dopamine does all kinds of things in different parts of the brain, but we're going to kind of focus in on the reward pathway the amygdala, the limbic system, and its connections to the prefrontal cortex in particular. Um, and I'll show you a video in just a second. Um, but so they can also involve serotonin, involved with memory and mood, regulation of sleep, uh, norepinephrine and energy, GABA inhibitory neurotransmitter, glutamate and excitatory neurotransmitter. Um, and you'll see a lot more of these. But first off, I want to show you a quick video that is something that I know you know already, but I like to illustrate it because it's a good example of a video that you could use to, to educate your clients and to show them how these processes work. So um, I'm going to show you one quick video about how dopamine normally works in our brain and all of our and all of us every day. Our brains are finely tuned machines. Inside, cells called neurons are constantly communicating to shape how we think, feel, and act. Let's eavesdrop on their conversation. These are the ends of two neurons. The one on the right sends a message, and the one on the left receives it. At first, they look connected, but they are actually separated by a tiny space called a synapse, where messages are relayed. What we'll see next is how we normally experience pleasure. The sending neuron contains dopamine, the brain's pleasure chemical. When something good happens to us, this feel-good chemical is released into the synapse where it connects with receptors. There, dopamine activates the receiving neuron, which in turn conveys the message onto the next neuron, creating a chain reaction that produces pleasure. After the message is sent, Dopamine is recycled by transporters to be reused. This conversation repeating itself again and again gives us the feeling of pleasure. What kinds of things give us pleasure in, in, in typical everyday life? What kinds of things give us pleasure which result in little boosts in dopamine? 
Yeah, exercise. Exercise, especially once you're in the routine of it, certainly. Yes. Laughter, kind of socialization. If you laugh with a friend or you get a hug from your spouse or from your kids after a stressful day, absolutely. Yeah. Many of you are mentioning food as well. Um, Food and food. It's not just like a delicious chocolate cake, but you know, even if you have an apple or a boring sandwich for lunch, uh, all types of food give us little boosts of dopamine. Um, there's one other one that you know maybe is not every day, but it's a typical human behavior. Any guesses? Yeah, exactly. Sex, absolutely. So when you think about food, sex, socialization with loved ones. These are really core survival behaviors. We have to eat as an individual to survive. As a species, we need to have sex in order to reproduce and continue. And also as individuals, we humans are social animals. We need connections with other people. Our brains have evolved to find these activities pleasurable so that way we keep doing them because they keep us alive. So I want to show you a couple of examples of how this natural dopamine activity works with typical everyday activities. These particular studies were done in mice, um, and we'll show you the parallels. So here, when the mouse is in its cage, at baseline, this is measuring the dopamine output, dopamine release, essentially. The typical baseline is about 100% normal. Once the mouse is fed, it gets a little treat dopamine goes up to about 150% of baseline. So it gets a little boost of dopamine. It's like, ooh, this feels good. Mice like food, uh, just like humans do. Next up, we've got a mouse hanging out in its cage all by itself. At baseline, the dopamine release is 100%. That's just normal baseline. When the mouse is introduced to a companion, we get a little partner mouse in the cage, and they, once they have sex, the dopamine release basically doubles. So it goes up to around 200%. So it's an even stronger surge of dopamine. It feels really good. Um, and again, these the amygdala, the limbic system, the reward pathway evolved to keep us alive. Um, now, all drugs of abuse stimulate dopamine. They have different mechanisms, there's different degrees, but they all stimulate dopamine. Um, so I'll show you a quick video to illustrate methamphetamine in particular, and then we'll talk about others. How does meth change our brain? When we use meth, it enters the bloodstream and travels to the reward center of the brain where it invades the sending neuron. Meth causes dopamine to unnaturally leak into the neuron then spill into the synapse. Making matters worse, meth blocks the transporters, which recycle dopamine back into the sending neuron. This keeps levels abnormally high, overstimulating our brains. We feel a powerful wave of pleasure. The rush can last 8 to 12 hours from just one dose. So in this example, methamphetamine, um, breaks down the vesicles that hold dopamine and the presynaptic neuron that causes dopamine excess higher levels to be released into the synapse. At the same time, it also blocks the recycling or the reuptake of, of dopamine that's in the synapse, which 
effectively, if there's a double whammy in boosting the overall activity at the dopamine receptor site um, on the neighboring neuron. Um, and different substances have different mechanisms, but all drugs of abuse boost, boost dopamine in particular. So here we're going back to our mice friends. Um, when the, the, the mice are in, administered alcohol or ethanol, the dopamine release at its peak is about 200% of baseline. Um, if we're talking about administration of nicotine, at its peak, it's about 225% of baseline. Um, for cocaine, at its peak, it's about 350% of baseline. And for methamphetamine, at its peak, it's about 1300%. So really a massive surge in dopamine. Um, and now people often ask about opioids. Opioids, it depends on the specific type. Um, for like heroin, for example, that doesn't have fentanyl in it, it can be, it's somewhere along the lines of cocaine in particular, but that is different for different types of opioids. And I'll show you one other slide connected to that. Um, but one thing that you'll notice, each of these slides has a little pink dot, uh, line at 200%. This is the dopamine release of sex. So alcohol already releases about as much dopamine as sex. Nicotine releases more. Cocaine releases a lot more. And methamphetamine releases a huge amount more. <laughs> it's hard to put words around it. 1,300%. It, it's a massive release of dopamine. But as all of you are aware, our brains aren't designed for this. Our brains like stability. They like homeostasis. And one thing to acknowledge about these mice is that these mice are all drug naive and they're different mice in each, in each example. Um, in other words, these mice haven't been out partying. You know, this is the first time they're getting these drugs. Um, after repeated dosage, dosages, our brains start to adapt because again, they, they, homeostasis is important. They will create less dopamine the dopamine receptors will become less sensitive. Some of the dopamine receptors retract into the neuron so they can't get turned on at all. You know, there's different mecha me mechanisms for downregulation, but the net activity at, ultimately after repeated use is there is less dopamine than when the, the person starts on out. Um, so initially, at the very beginning, you get these massive surges of dopamine that feel amazing. Over time, you get significantly less dopamine than baseline. And because these signals are so powerful, they're more powerful than natural activities that give pleasure, like sex, for example, um, which, which has a lot of clinical implications that we're going to talk about. Any questions on this? First question in the chat, is there a medication that is a blocker for meth like they have for opioids? Unfortunately, no. There are no FDA approved medications that are effective for methamphetamine use disorders. Um, researchers have been looking for decades to try to find a medication that was helpful for not just methamphetamine, but cocaine and other stimulants too. Unfortunately, there's nothing that is currently showing efficacy, but it is a very, very active area of ongoing research. Um, that's a, this is a good plug for, we, I think we, we're doing two trainings on medication-assisted treatment for 
alcohol and opioid use disorders that we'll dig into those in more detail. Um, that's a great question. So initially people continue to use because it feels very pleasurable. And because substances act on this life or death survival part of our brain, once people develop cravings for substances and their brains start to change, it's not just a casual, like, you know, maybe I'll get high today. It starts to feel like life or death. Um, if you've ever gone, you know, all day without eating and, you know, sometimes you get kind of hangry, it feels like sometimes it feels like you're going to pass out or you, you get really angry and upset until you eat something. Imagine that, but significantly, significantly more powerful because the effects on dopamine go far beyond um, the, the typical effects you see with everyday activities. So let me give you a couple examples of this. Uh, the net underactivity with dopamine. So here's a healthy control. We're looking at dopamine release in the amygdala and the limbic system. Um, <clears throat> here's our healthy control. Here is a, a, a person with a methamphetamine use disorder who's in the early day phases of abstinence. You can see the, the brighter the colors indicate more dopamine activity, and you can see significantly underactive compared to the healthy control. Um, now, while Parkinson's disease has a completely different mechanism um, that leads to the loss of those dopamine releasing cells, very different, but there are some parallels to the net underactivity of dopamine. Here's another example. Um, these, these are in monkeys. I'll show you a couple more with humans. Um, but this is the control group before any substance use. And again, these are done in monkeys, so they do have a lot of control here. Here is um, a, an animal that's given heavy doses of amphetamine, and then they're forced to have 10 days of abstinence. And you can see we're, we're looking here in the amygdala significantly darker levels of dopamine, dopamine activity, 10 days of abstinence. Oops, I thought there was one more. Um, I'll show you the human version of it in just a second. Um, and like I mentioned, dopamine is not the entire story. It's just one piece of the puzzle. Um, but dopamine is involved in that reward cravings. Um, but depending on the substance, there's also serotonin and glutamate, acetylcholine, a lot of others that are also involved too. And these changes that happen are long lasting. So I'll show you the human equivalent in just a second. Oh, so like I mentioned earlier, it's not just meth, it's all drugs of abuse. So these are the healthy controls over here on the left. Here's the person with the cocaine use disorder on the right. And you can see significantly levels of lower dopamine activity. Here's our methamphetamine user, which we've been talking a lot about. Here's our alcohol. This is the healthy control. And here's our heavy alcohol user. And you can see significantly lower dopamine activity. And then finally, this is a healthy control compared with a, a person with a, uh, an opioid use disorder, heroin in particular. You can see significantly less dopamine activity. And then like I was mentioning earlier, those dopamine receptors become less sensitive and some will retract into the neurons. They can't be turned on at all. And so the brain's way of down-regulating and adapting to these artificial levels of dopamine are brought. Now, clinically, what does this mean? Um, 
First off, there are significant cognitive and memory effects that are really significant, uh, especially clinically in, in, in treatment settings is there are effects on memory, attention, focus. Um, in our cognitive behavioral therapy training, we spend a lot of time talking about how structuring a CBT session is so important because it's designed to work with human brains. Okay. Last thing I'll, I'll show you, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about the memory and attention and whatnot. So this particular uh, scan, this is an fMRI. It's a slice of the brain going down this way right here. And what it's doing is it's comparing a methamphetamine user with a healthy control. And in this particular part, we're looking at the amygdala here. And the brighter colors actually indicate overactivity. So these are more active in the methamphetamine user compared to the healthy control. Um, and the amygdala, when it's stimulated, this is emotion regulation. Our fight or flight response is also activated by the amygdala. <clears throat> With substance use, this is activated when people are exposed to triggers. Um, and you can see it's significantly overactive compared to the healthy control. I like to think about this part of the brain as like the gas pedal in your car. It is go, go, go. It's activated to either fight or flee or freeze. Um, and then in our stimulant users, it, this is where cravings get activated. So it's pedal to the metal. Now, typically our prefrontal cortex is supposed to inhibit some of those signals. It's supposed to say, you, I know you have a craving right now, but you've been sober for 30 days and you should hang in there. How about you call your sponsor or you call your counselor because you're having a tough day? Or remember all those coping skills your counselor told you? Do those. <laughs> you know, the, the prefrontal cortex is involved with inhibition and long-term planning and, right, and um, thought processing about uh, executive function. However, in our stimulant users, and this is true for other drugs of abuse also, it's significantly underactive. The darker the color is indicating underactivity compared to the healthy control. And it's a, this is an fMRI slice of the brain going down this way. So this is right up here, right behind your eyeballs. Um, I like to think about this part of the brain as the brakes. It slows things down, trying to think ahead. What are the pros and cons and what are the consequences of my behavior? Um, what are my coping skills that I should be using? Um, and the brakes aren't working as well. You've got pedal to the metal, go, go, go. Brakes that normally help you slow you down and think ahead aren't working quite so well. Um, so what impacts might this have on your clients and their function? Yeah, have you ever had, yeah, they, they react very quickly without thinking through? Absolutely. And, and what are some examples of how that might look either in session or in their life? Sometimes it, it helps to explain how sometimes they can get frustrated very easily. Um, if they get into arguments with other clients in a treatment setting, setting, why they might get frustrated with their treatment providers, their doctors who aren't listening to them, um, when they feel like the staff is disrespecting me, they go off pretty easily. Mm -hmm. It also helps us to understand how relapse is so common. 
why not use it? And staying sober is so difficult because the brain has changed in a way to set them up for failure because they're very easily triggered. And the part that helps them to think ahead about how to stay sober doesn't work quite as effectively. So without support, without structure, without peers, without all the important elements of treatment to help to counteract this, it, it helps to explain why relapse is so common and why people don't just snap out of addiction. It does, it takes a lot of support, a lot of collaboration. Um, I also, this is helpful to explain to clients so they understand the importance of being engaged in treatment and, and why relapse is so common. I also think it's sometimes helpful for providers when it sometimes feels frustrating that your clients are making the same mistakes over and over and over again. As a provider, sometimes that can be very frustrating. Um, when it seems like, you know, we've talked about this, but they're still making the same mistakes again and again and again. They're not doing it to frustrate you. Uh, their brains are healing. Their brains are not working in the same way as they would if they didn't have a substance use disorder. So sometimes that can help a little bit um, when, when providers get frustrated too. So there's good news. How much does the brain heal? There is good news. And there were some old, um, there were some old brain images. It were, I think it was like spec scans that showed holes in the brain. And you know, people used to say meth ate holes in your brain. Uh, the good news is that that's not true. <laughs> And the brain does have a remarkable ability to improve, to have improvements in functioning. Um, and that down regulation can be reversed to an extent and with certain caveats. Um, so I wanna show you that piece here. Um, so these are monkeys. And again, I'll show you humans in just a second. Um, so these were the slides I showed you previously, the control group. Um, here we have 10 days of, um, oh, they were given chronic amphetamines for 10 days, and then there were four weeks of abstinence. So here's our four week of abstinence point in time, which you can compare to the control group here. This is six months of abstinence. It's not looking good either. But then at one year of abstinence, it's looking significantly better. It's not, you know, identical to the healthy control, but at one year of abstinence, it's looking significantly, significantly better. Yeah. And then here's two years here. The improvements just continue from there. We see similar results in humans as well. So these are humans, this is our healthy control. So it's a different person, but it's matched for age and all kinds of things. Here's a heavy methamphetamine user who's been abstinence, abstinent for one month. You could see, see significantly less dopamine activity, but here's a methamphetamine user at two, two years of abstinence, 24 months later. And at 24 months, it's significantly better. You know, there's lots of yellows, there's lots of oranges and reds. It's not identical to the control, but it's looking significantly better. So the way I like to frame this is there's good news. There, the brain has a remarkable ability to improve in functioning. Neuroplasticity is remarkable. It's incredible. That's good news. There's hope. 
you never want to lose track of that. The not so good news is it takes time. It doesn't happen quickly. Now, how long does it take? You can't give your client X number of days because it depends on what substance it was, how young they were when they started, quantity of their use, duration. There are factors that can make the time shorter or longer. So it's not possible to give your client a specific number. However, it's not overnight. It's not even a couple of weeks. It's likely months at, on the early end. Um, so it shows the importance of staying engaged in treatment, keep coming back, and reminding them that hope is possible. They will feel better, but it will take some time. Um, so there's good news. There's good news, and I, and I don't want to lose track of that. There's good news, but the not so good news is it does take time in order to get there, um, which emphasizes the importance of chronic a chronic medical condition perspective. Um, just like we think about diabetes isn't cured overnight. It's a long-term chronic condition. Clients who have schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, these are chronic conditions that require long-term treatment, long-term engagement and, and recovery. Um, and there's a lot of things that people can do to help support them. Exercise, for example, absolutely. Um, and there are some studies that show that exercise can help accelerate this, absolutely. So we talked about some of these elements here. I'll mention just a couple others. Um, this has a lot of implications, both for your know, recovery perspectives. Um, but one thing I also want to, that sometimes we, we don't want to over-medicalize it because the brain isn't everything. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have to tell you all that. There are some very important roles of in the neighborhoods where people live, access to healthcare, um, socioeconomic status, poverty, um, community risk factors, all, all of those social determinants of health impact the likelihood of developing an addiction or, or recovery or, or protective factors too. So while yes, addiction is a brain disease, it's not the whole story. I've mentioned that a couple of times, but I just want to highlight a slide on that as well. There are some evidence that there are some genetic components, but even genes aren't destiny. Epigenetics, genes can be turned on or off depending on your environment. Um, so it just helps us supplement that. One other quick thing that I want to mention as well is kind of the overlap of age as well. The younger people are when they start using, um, that has more impacts on brain development. I know many of you are familiar with this already, so I don't have to go into this a ton, but the brain doesn't fully develop until around age 25. This process of synaptic pruning is really important. Um, and it's probably not new for many of you, so I'll just briefly highlight this. Um, Here's, um, these are just illustrations of synapses at birth. Um, as, as people get older, they get those synapses, the neurons start to build connections with each other. They build a really, um, pro, there's a huge proliferation in the connections between the neurons. 
um, which helps to, and then as people are exposed to different things in their life and in their environment, the brain goes through a process of pruning where, um, where certain brain connections that are used regularly, they get myelinated, so they become more efficient, they become faster, and brain connections that are not used get pruned back. So it's maximizing efficiency in areas that are used and pruning those that are, that are not used. And this process also happens from the back of the brain first, slowly to the front of the brain. And that prefrontal cortex being the last part to fully go through that pruning process. Um, so adolescents in general already have an underactive prefrontal cortex compared to their adult counterparts, which already makes them more prone to risk-taking, um, not thinking through the long-term consequences. Um, these are just some slides that illustrate this. Here's the, the blue is indicating um, less gray matter where things have been pruned and it starts at the very back of the brain and then slowly moves forwards. But I think you guys get the gist of that. So adolescents already have difficulty in decision-making, understanding consequences of behavior, which can lead to experimentation and um, potentially risk for substance use disorders. Um, many people call substance use disorder adolescent. Um, they're developmental disorders because the vast majority of people with addiction start using in their late teenage years, later adolescence as well. So there are in impacts on ages also. But long story short, just to kind of summarize our section here, when we think about substance use disorders as brain diseases, um, there's a lot of parallels. When we think about how we manage other chronic conditions like diabetes, there are no cures for diabetes or asthma, but there are treatments that are effective, but they require long-term recovery or uh, frameworks. Um, and, just like substance use disorders, things like diabetes, hypertension have genetic factors, behavioral factors as well, um, and, and effective treatments to it. Um, but one thing I also wanna acknowledge that sometimes people think about substance use disorders a little bit differently is in the realm of relapse. Behavior change is hard in general. I mean, we're not too far away from New Year's resolutions, um, which sometimes are uh, a wake up call of how behavior, sustaining behavior change is hard. Um, and substance use is not all that different from other chronic conditions. So th these are some studies that we're taking a look at other chronic conditions that have relapse and symptoms. How often do people relapse or have a recurred, recurrence of symptoms? Anywhere between 30 to, to 70% when you look at things like high blood pressure or asthma or diabetes. Substance use disorders is not all, they're not all that dissimilar, around 40 to 60%. So there, like many other chronic conditions, people have relapse and symptoms, but what's really important is how having a recovery perspective that relapse is an opportunity to learn, to learn from mistakes and try to find new ways of adapting. Um, of coping and managing environmental stressors and triggers, uh, which we'll talk a lot more about in just a second.
And at the end of it, um, just like other chronic conditions, they need complex problems and often need multifaceted solutions. So there are behavioral therapies. Counseling is really important. The work of social workers and psychologists and counselors. Some people also need medications, whether that's medications to manage their co-occurring mental health conditions or medications for alcohol or opioid use disorders um, can be helpful for some people. And then we also have to think about the chronic medical condition that often co-occur. Because co-occurring disorders, it's not just mental health and substance use. We also have to think about how the direct impacts on their medical conditions too. And community, building community support, developing peers, relationships, as are also really important. Um, so when we think about what treatment looks like, there's biological factors, there's social, spiritual factors too, finding purpose and, and psychological and mental health factors. All of these are really central to when we think about well, what does recovery look like for folks. But there is hope. There's hope at the end of the day. Um, and the longer, periods of abstinence that, that folks have, the more likely they are to be in long-term recovery. Um, extended abstinence is predictive of sustained recovery. The odds of remaining abstinent rise if a person has been abstinent for one to three years. Um, and after three years, they remain high and stable. So recovery is possible. There is hope. All right, um, last couple things here. Um, medications can be really valuable parts of treatment, um, but behavior change is really important for sustaining the benefit. Um, treatment effects usually don't last long after treatment stops, which means people have to find ways to be engaged in recovery long-term. Um, and so ongoing support, monitoring, involvement in community and peers is also really important. I know peers are really important in, at, at DMH. We've got a lot, of, a lot of parallels that we can work with together. Okay. So final things, retention is important. Engaging people and building relationships is critical because we need to help people with a long-term perspective. Um, being non-judgmental, mo motivational-based approaches are really helpful with that. Um, and being as engaging and non-judgmental with people as possible. It's really, really important in, in keeping people and retaining them into care. Um, all right, we're gonna shift gears a little bit and we are gonna spend some time talking about our substances specifically. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna break down our, our depressants, our stimulants and our hallucinogens. Um, so, um, I, I teach at UCLA's uh, Extension has a program for substance abuse counselors, and I teach in that program. We've got a textbook called Uppers, Downers, and All-Arounders, which is a great way to remember <laughs> our main categories that we're talking about here. Um, but here's what we're going to do next. So we're going to talk about our depressants. We're going to talk about alcohol, opioids, um, and cannabis in particular. We're going to talk about our stimulants. And Today's training is not going to focus as much on hallucinogens. I'm happy to entertain any questions about them. Most hallucinogens like LSD and magic mushrooms um, have less of an abuse potential 
Um, so they tend not to be the primary drugs of abuse. Uh, but if you do have specific questions on hallucinogens, hallucinogens, I'm very happy to touch on those today. But this is what we are going to uh, dig into next. Uh, before we do that, um, what substances are most commonly used by your clients? Awesome. Thank you all for participating in that. Uh, alcohol, by far the most commonly used drug, followed by cannabis. Um, and the, the National Survey on Drug Use and Health also um, backs that up. I will say here in LA County, there are some data treatment admissions. This is the specialty substance use treatment, not DMH, but just the, you know, the SUD treatment more broadly. Nowadays, there are more people in treatment in LA County for cannabis than there is for alcohol, which is really interesting. So now what we are gonna do is we are gonna go into breakout rooms. So here's what you're gonna do is, and this is one of the worksheets that you have that I would definitely encourage you. Here's our worksheet number one. Here's what you're gonna do is we are gonna split into breakout rooms and with your colleagues, I want you to answer these five questions um, that you see on your worksheet. So I want you to ask, what are some examples of this substance? What are the intoxicating effects of this substance? So basically, when you're under the influence, what does that look like? Does it give you energy? Does it make you tired? Um, does it affect your thinking? Um, number three, what are the symptoms of withdrawal from the substance? So if you suddenly stop using, what does that look like? Do you get um, hungry? Do you get tired? Do you get anxiety? What does that look like? And then, you know, what does a treatment provider need to know to assess how the substance is affecting the person? Um, what do you want to look out for? Uh, what are the mental health symptoms that this might affect? Um, as you're assessing and, and engaging your clients in conversation, how does that affect them? And then finally, what kind of interventions might be necessary to help support the client in their recovery? All right. Welcome back, everyone. Um, I had a chance to listen in on, I think I made it to all of your breakout rooms right before we took a little break here. Um, and I want to give you all an opportunity to, to share a little bit. So here's how, we'll, here's how we're going to do the second piece of this. Is we're going to go to our different categories of our classes of substances. I'm going to invite um, a spokesperson from that group to just kind of summarize what you came up with as a group. What are the examples of the substance? What are the intoxicating effects or the withdrawal effects? What does the provider need to know um, to identify and assess issues connected to, connected to that substance in particular? And then what I'll do is I'll just supplement from the slides anything extra that I think might be helpful to highlight there. Um, Okay, so let's go ahead and start off with, there were two groups who did, who covered alcohol. One of the things that's really critical when it comes to this withdrawal piece is alcohol and benzodiazepines are the only substances where the withdrawal can literally kill you. Where if you have a heavy drinker, it's important for them to get a medical evaluation for withdrawal management. People call it detox, but you know I prefer to call it withdrawal management. Um, 
detox is really a misnomer. You're not detoxifying anything. It's with the process of safely withdrawing from the medication because you can have a seizure, you can have delirium tremens, and you can lose your life. So it's really important. And those long-term effects are also very, very significant. Uh, arguably, alcohol is one of the more toxic substances on the body. So there's a cardiovascular disease like high blood pressure, um, type two diabetes, and there are a bazillion cancers that are associated with heavy, heavy drinking, the, uh, the, the mouth, the tongue, the esophagus, breast cancer, colon cancer, liver cancer. Um, there's a many, many, um, significant physical health effects related with it. I'm trying to figure out what are some of the reasons that people are drinking in the first place, especially with alcohol. We see a lot of co-occurrence with anxiety disorders. Um, alcohol is really effective at temporarily reducing people's anxiety. It helps people to cope and to manage better temporarily. Oftentimes that anxiety ends up getting worse, but trying to figure out what are their reasons for using it in the first place. So here's what I'm going to do. You have a whole bunch of slides related on alcohol. I'm not going to read through every slide word for word. We covered a lot of the fundamentals. I'll summarize what I think we need to add to it, and then we're going to move on. But I just want to make sure that you're aware that you do have all of these slides and all of these details. But if I read every single word, you'd be really bored. So acutely, alcohol is a sedative. It can slow down your reaction time, which is why it's unsafe to drive. Impaired coordination, sedation can make you fall asleep and reduces anxiety, at least in the short term. Acutely, if you drink too much, it can also lead to uh, alcohol poisoning. It can lead to death as well. The withdrawal symptoms, like we mentioned, tremors, chills, anxiety, agitation, and especially with heavy drinkers, it can lead to convulsions and seizures and potentially death as well. So it's important for the 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 for heavy drinkers to be evaluated medically by um, for the need for withdrawal management. There are medications that help people slowly wean off the off, off alcohol, it's usually benzodiazepines, to make sure they don't they don't suffer through a seizure a seizure and lose their life. Um, although we're not going to cover it today, there are FDA-approved medications that can also be used in the treatment for alcohol use disorders, one of them being Vivitrol. I know DMH is very invested in increasing access to the Vivitrol shot, very effective for alcohol use disorders. We'll cover that in, in, a, in our medication-assisted treatment training in particular, but I also wanted to kind of mention it. Um, we touched on most of these long-term effects already. Largely think about cardiovascular disease as the big one and cancer. Um, there are also detrimental effects to the liver. Um, typically that takes very prolonged drinking. It's usually decades of very heavy drinking that can cause that scarring of the liver or cirrhosis. But once it re reaches a certain point, that scarring is permanent. People need liver transplants. Um, um, again, we have a training on co-occurring disorders, and it's going to really dig into some of the, the mental health symptoms that overlap and then parallel with it. But this is really our just found our foundations here. Um, and then the withdrawal as well. For many people, withdrawal becomes a big factor in why they continue to use. They're not even enjoying it anymore. They're just trying to, to get through the day and to, and to cope. 
Um, and especially in, 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 in your setting, in your, in your treatment settings, many people self-medicate with alcohol. They use it to cope, to cope with emotional pain, to cope with stress, to cope with anxiety, to feel less depressed, to feel less hopeless. Um, and so trying to find out clinically, what are the reasons that people are using in the first place are really important because they're gonna have to find alternative ways to get those needs met. Just to answer your question in the chat, anecdotally, I'm hearing quite frequently that during COVID, people are drinking a lot more. Um, um, I don't have any data to support that just yet, but I, I, I have a feeling we're gonna be learning and studying this period for a long time because anecdotally, I'm definitely hearing a lot of people consuming more alcohol during COVID, which is not, it's not surprising, um, but it's challenging. All right, uh, let's move on to our next group, um, our two groups who, who discussed opioids. Yeah, so just to kind of uh, summarize what we talked about here, opioids, we're especially hearing a lot about it. Um, you might hear different terms. There are technical differences between it. And when we talk about what are some examples of it, opiates, if you want to get technical, they are derived directly from the opium poppy plant itself. So these are things like morphine and codeine. Opioid is a broader term for any substance that binds to the opioid receptor site. So our bodies have opioid receptors all throughout the whole body. It is the part of the body that has the highest concentration is the addiction center of the brain, the amygdala and the limbic system um, has the highest concentration of opioid receptor sites because our body naturally releases endogenous opioids um, at, various, in, at various times. Um, not only if you might injure yourself, but also when you experience pleasure as well. Um, but opioids really is the broader term here. Um, and opioids includes everything. It includes heroin. It includes um, all of the prescription pain medications like uh, Vicodin and Oxycontin um, and all of those uh, synthetic derivatives of it. And opioids can be used, every route of administration is covered. It can be used intravenously, it can be smoked, especially heroin. It can be used intranasally or encephalated through the nose, orally in tablets, for example, uh, intrarectally, it runs the gamut here. And oh, and transdermally as well through the skin. Um, one opioid that you're very likely to hear a lot about is fentanyl. Fentanyl is a synthetic opioid. It's about a thousand times more potent than morphine. And we're starting to see fentanyl in many different recreational drugs. So people are buying heroin, for example, and it's laced with fentanyl. We're also seeing stimulants get laced with fentanyl, like cocaine and methamphetamine. And so this is leading to significant overdose death, overdose deaths. Uh, in the, in the MAT, MAT training, we will go through the history of opioid, the opioid epidemic. Um, <clears throat> the first wave was the prescriptions. The second wave was heroin. The third wave is like the synthetics, particularly fentanyl. And 
of most recently is now this co-occurring opioid and stimulant used together. Um, but, but for today's training, I just wanted to highlight some of the fundamentals here. Opioids, whether it's heroin or Oxycontin, they work exactly the same in the body. They're very powerful pain relievers. And when I say pain, it's both physical pain and emotional pain as well. They're very potent at helping people to feel better. Um, so acutely, um, people, I've heard people describe it as almost like a warm blanket is covering them. They feel like everything is gonna be okay. And if you think about your clients with significant trauma histories, serious mental illness, sometimes feeling like everything is gonna be okay is a really powerful enticing factor. Um, uh, euphoria, sedation, um, the thing about opioids is there's also a lot of opioid receptors in the brainstem, which controls our breathing and our heart rate. So one of the concerns with opioids is the risk of overdose. If you take too much, you mix different opioids types together, you mix opioids with other depressants like alcohol or benzodiazepines, there's a synergistic effect, it can lead to overdose and death. Um, However, there is an overdose reversing medication called naloxone that can be life-saving. Um, again, we'll talk about that more in our, our medication-assisted treatment um, training in and of itself, but there are medications that can help with that. Um, long-term, there, the, there aren't many physiological long-term negative effects of opioids. Um, they're largely connected to route of administration. So a lot of these that you see on the screen are connected to injection drug use, for example, like HIV infection, hepatitis C, uh, bacterial infection in the heart, it's called endocarditis. Well, these are largely connected to injection drug use. Um, the biggest long-term risk with opioid use is really overdose, but in terms of organ systems and your physiology, it's not particularly toxic to the body. Certainly not the way that alcohol is, for example. Um, there you go, you could just see some different examples of heroin. Um, depending on the typical, the typical pattern of use with opioids is um, people start to go into withdrawal because the blood levels drop the withdrawal is incredibly unpleasant. Um, everything hurts. You're in pain, um, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, really unpleasant. Um, opioid withdrawal, people will do anything to feel better. Sometimes they describe it as getting sick and whatever you gotta do to feel better, people will do it, which involves getting access to opioids. So it, it's, it's this huge roller coaster of you go into withdrawal, you use just to function and get get through the next couple hours, then the blood levels drop, you go into withdrawal again, it ends up being this huge roller coaster. Um, and the, avoiding withdrawal is a very powerful driving force. Um, the people will do whatever it takes not to get sick because when you're in opioid withdrawal, it's really, really incredibly unpleasant. Um, the withdrawal symptoms, they 
The severity and the length depends on what type of opioid. Some opioids are shorter acting like heroin. These typically get withdrawal symptoms in a day or so, the next couple of days, and then they subside over a period of days, but you can have some lingering symptoms for weeks or months. Longer acting opioids, the withdrawal is more protracted. Um, but it's while opioid withdrawal is rarely lethal, it won't kill you in most cases, unless you have severe medical conditions. Um, however, it's incredibly, incredibly painful and unpleasant. Um, yeah. I think we talked about most of this. Overdoses happen when people either the opioid that they're using is stronger than they thought, which is happening more and more with fentanyl. Fentanyl is laced in various opioid products and that can lead to overdose. Or the other biggest causes is mixing, mixing different opioids together or mixing different types of depressants together. Opioids, benzodiazepines, opioids, alcohol. Those are the most common factors that lead to overdose. All right. Um, they're just like with alcohol, um, some people will, will can benefit from withdrawal management from opioids as well, which helps to help helps them to slowly taper off the opioid to reduce some of the withdrawal symptoms. There are also FDA approved medications that are very effective for opioid use disorders. Um, naltrexone as well, which is an opioid blocker. It uh, blocks the effects of opioids for people that have already, who are already opioid free. And then there are agonists and partial agonists like methadone and buprenorphine. They function by, by preventing the withdrawal symptom, the withdrawal symptoms and reducing cravings which basically they work by helping people to function so they can access treatment. They can access the behavioral health resources. They can do the work of treatment in and of itself. Um, and they are, there are life-saving medications as well. Again, our MAT training goes into a lot more detail around opioids in, in particular, but these are really sort of the fundamental components. Um, just briefly going to talk about sedatives. I actually probably should have done this earlier. Sedatives, um, when we're talking about anxiety and sleep medications, I know you guys are very familiar with uh, many of these, primarily work by enhancing GABA. Uh, GABA is inhibitory neurotransmitter, it slows you down. Um, these are the primary one we think about is benzodiazepines, for example. Um, these are prescription anxiety medications, sometimes they're used for sleep. They basically function as alcohol in a pill form without the toxicity, um, but fundamentally they work very similar. So benzodiazepines often have a cross tolerance with alcohol. As somebody is a heavy drinker, they have a high tolerance for alcohol. There's often a similar high tolerance for benzodiazepines because they work on the exact same neurotransmitter system. And everything that I said about alcohol withdrawal is exactly the same as benzodiazepine withdrawal. Anxiety, agitation, um, and benzodiazepine withdrawal is also potentially lethal. So for people on high doses of benzos, they've been using them for a long time. It's important for them to be 
medically evaluated um, for the need for withdrawal management because it, similarly, it can also be potentially potentially lethal. The acute effects are pretty much the same as alcohol as well, which we all covered. All right. Next up, we are going to talk about cannabinoids, uh, cannabis. And I just want to kind of bounce uh, off of, a, of what you were mentioning about triggers. One of the things that we cover in the cognitive behavioral therapy for substance use are worksheets that you can use to explore what the client's triggers are. So because of classical conditioning, there is a variety of things that get paired with substance use over time. There are external triggers, which are things like people, places, locations, times a day. And then there's internal triggers, emotions, moods, feelings, physiological states that over time get repeatedly paired with substance use. And when you get exposed to the trigger by itself, it can lead to thoughts, feelings, behaviors connected to substance use, that cognitive triad. And so helping your clients to identify what those triggers are, how to avoid those that are avoidable, make a plan for how to cope with those triggers that are unavoidable is a really important early recovery skill. Um, and we'll talk in more detail about that in the CBT training in particular, but really good job of highlighting that because just like, they, because there, there's a similar process of trigger, thoughts, cravings lead to behavioral outcomes, which is using very similar parallels in mental health as well. Exposure to trigger, triggers lead to thoughts, lead to feelings, lead to behavioral responses that are maladaptive in, in different contexts. Um, just to kind of touch on a couple things and to summarize a little bit there, cannabis, um, there are, is there's the flower itself, the cannabis flower, which is typically smoked in various with various paraphernalia in pipes and bongs and, and rolled up joints. There's hashish, which is a bit more concentrated. It's like the concentrated resin from the plant. And then there are a variety of oils that are extracted from the hashish. So there's hash oil and there's a variety of oil-based products that can be smoked, can be sprinkled on flour. The oils can also be baked into confections, into cookies and pies and drinks, uh, edibles, for example. Um, <clears throat> and that oil can also be vaporized, just like electronic cigarettes, e-cigs, um, or tobacco. Um, there are, you can vape hash oil or the, uh, the cannabis oil as well. Um, like all routes of administration, Smoking is the fastest. It gets to the brain the most quickly. If you use something orally, it takes much longer, usually about 45 to 60 minutes to feel the effects if it's ingested orally, like in an edible, for example. Um, now, cannabinoids, just like opioids, the body has a naturally occurring cannabinoid neurotransmitter system. However, it's one of the more recently discovered neurotransmitter systems, and we don't know a lot about it. Uh, we know tons about GABA and dopamine. We still have a lot to learn about the natural, the endogenous cannabinoid system. It's definitely involved in pain and mood and appetite, but it also has significant effects on the, on the um, 
the immune system that we don't fully understand just yet. But um, the main psychoactive ingredient that you're likely to hear about is THC. It's Delta 9 tetrahydrocannabinol. It's the primary psychoactive ingredient. It causes the euphoria, the high. In that activates it releases dopamine as well. There are lots of other cannabinoids, but this is the main one that is responsible for the psychoactive effects, the euphoria causing effects. Um, so I think I have a slide on it. Um, yeah, um, there are other, many other cannabinoids. There's a big, big, because of a tax law a few years ago, uh, legalized hemp products. And so there's a huge proliferation of CBD or cannabidiol or cannabidiol products that are believed to have more of the therapeutic potential benefits of canna cannabis products. It seems to be responsible for the seizure reducing properties, um, the pain relieving properties as well. And it doesn't have the same psychoactive effects. Um, it's more sedating, but it doesn't have the euphoria causing pleasure of it. Um, um, yeah. Let me show you a little video to illustrate some of these. I, I, this video is, an, is a simplification, but it's another example of a, a video that you could use to also help to educate your clients. So it's, it's, it, it's, it's broken down simple enough that can be useful in those contexts. So, um, and, it's, and it's fun. So we'll watch that one briefly. For centuries, humans have been using substances to alter their state of mind, from caffeine, cigarettes, and alcohol, to more extreme drugs. But as the most commonly used illicit drug in North America, where does marijuana fit in, and how exactly does it affect your brain? First, we need to understand how the brain functions. Your neurons are the cells that process information in the brain. By releasing chemicals called neurotransmitters from the axon of one neuron to the dendrite of another, they change the electrical charge of the receiving neuron, consequently exciting or inhibiting it. If excited, the signals passed on. Though it sounds simple, these signals work together and the effect is quickly compounded into complex configurations within milliseconds, flushing over the entire brain. This is what happens every single time you think, breathe, or move. So what's going on inside your brain when you're smoking marijuana? Well, unlike alcohol, which contains molecules nothing like those in our body, cannabis contains molecules that resemble those produced in our very own brains, cannabinoids. Though naturally, these cannabinoids circulate in much lower quantities compared to the large influx imposed by smoking. Specifically, the chemical tetrahydrocannabinol, or THC, resembles a natural transmitter called anandamide. These cannabinoids are specialized neurotransmitters released by neurons having just fired. Neurons temporarily become unresponsive after firing to prevent them from overreacting or being too dominant. This allows your brain to function in a calm and controlled manner. But cannabinoids interrupt this approach in some parts of the brain. Instead, they remove the refractory period of neurons that are already active and cause your thoughts, imagination, and perception to utterly magnify itself. This means once you begin your train of thought, it becomes the most significant and profound thing ever. You can't see the big picture or even recall your last epiphany because you're caught up in the momentum of a particular idea and your neurons keep firing until a new idea takes hold and you go off on a new tangent. These cannabinoids also affect the levels of dopamine and norepinephrine in your brain, often leading to a sense of euphoria, relaxation, pain modulation, and general enhancement of an experience, though sometimes causing anxiety. 
Furthermore, there are cannabinoid receptors in areas controlling short-term memory, learning, coordination, movement control, and higher cognitive functions. In, in addition to some of what he was mentioning about the refractory period, um, it also affects parts of the amygdala that are basically, if you're in a novel situation, you're experiencing something for the first time, part of the amygdala is responsible for, for figuring out, is this something I need to be afraid of? Or is this something interesting and curiosity provoking? Um, and cannabis artificially activates that that part that is like, wow, this is really new. I've never experienced this before. And instead of being, it, so it sparks kind of curiosity. And by artificially stimulating that, mundane, boring, or regular things can all of a sudden seem really profound and really like cartoons are like, this is the coolest thing that I've ever seen. But if you artificially activate that over and over and over again, it's the body start homeostasis happens like the body starts to reduce some of those effects so that way every if you stop using cannabis things can just feel boring even if you're in a genuinely novel interesting situation or life experience it just starts to feel dull and uninteresting so there is this a motivational syndrome that can happen over protect over a period of time in protracted use um, so, but our, our full understanding of cannabis and how it affects the brain is still pretty, pretty rudimentary. Um, um, let me see here. Um, this kind of connects to, yes, I promise I'll touch on this. Um, cannabis does, in addition to the acute effects, things like relaxation, increased appetite, altered sense of time, bloodshot eyes. There are significant, um, well, I'll touch on the cognitive effects in just a second. Sometimes, one thing that sometimes surprises people is cannabis can cause significant cardiovascular effects as well. One of the main ones is blood pressure. It's, while cannabis is generally sedating, there is this paradoxical increase in heart rate and increase in blood pressure. So if you have clients who have significant cardiovascular disease, this can increase the risk for a heart attack. Um, but especially clinically, one thing that can be a significant is cognitive effects. Effects on memory, attention, and focus are, are big ones here. Um, and these are pretty, pretty profound. And there's been studies that have been done of adults who use cannabis, um, heavy cannabis users, there's very significant effects on cognitions, memory, attention, and focus. But what's really interesting, however, is uh, after, so this particular research study, there were 63 current heavy cannabis users, and then a 72 controlled group. After the heavy cannabis users, went through seven days of supervised abstinence. They made sure they hadn't used any cannabis for seven days. All of those cognitive effects went away. Their memory came right back. <laughs> Attention, focus, memory, all of it bounced right back. And there were no differences between the cannabis group and the control group. So what that indicated was these cognitive deficits in adults appear to be reversible. 
and they're not permanent. So that's good news. Um, I think I have a study a little bit later that shows this is not as certain with adolescents. There are some studies that show when people start using cannabis in their teenage years, some of these cognitive deficits can be longer lasting. We don't know if they are permanent, permanent, but they do appear to be much longer lasting. So, you know, in terms of low risk, the older a person, the more you can delay cannabis use, the better. Um, cannabis use in adulthood appears to be less risky than cannabis use in adolescence. Uh, withdrawal. Um, a couple of you had mentioned withdrawal symptoms also. For a long time, people didn't think that cannabis withdrawal was a significant experience, that there wasn't much to it. Um, and I think that was a product of cannabis in the 70s and the 80s are very, is very, very different than the cannabis today. For decades, cultivators have grown the flower to be stronger and more potent. And people have also switched to more potent cannabis products like the oils and the hash oils and whatnot. So nowadays, for heavy cannabis users, there can be pretty significant withdrawal symptoms. These are not medically urgent. It's, it's not, nothing like alcohol or opioid withdrawal, but these could be pretty, pretty unpleasant symptoms that people experience that can, be, can affect quality of life and can affect functioning. Uh, it doesn't require medical interventions, but in terms of functioning, they can be pretty unpleasant. Cannabis is another example of a substance that people use to self-medicate for underlying mental health symptoms, for stress, for anxiety, for dealing with depression. Um, one thing that I will share is um, there, to my knowledge and to my awareness, there are no good quality studies that show cannabis is a, an effective treatment for mental health conditions. Now, on the street and in the, in the public, people very commonly use cannabis as medicine for anxiety disorders or major depressive disorders. Um, but there is no research that supports that the benefits outweigh the risks. And there are, as you all are experts in, there are many other effective treatments for anxiety, mental health conditions, that are proven that the benefits outweigh the risks. Um, <clears throat> I'm always open to that if there's research that changes um, in the future, but to, to, to my knowledge, and um, there are no, there's no evidence that supports the use of cannabis as a treatment for, for mental health conditions, where there's documented evidence that the, the benefits outweigh the, the risks that are involved. Um, but it, there's also so many challenges to doing quality randomized control trials with cannabis that I don't have time to get into today that make doing some of that research kind of challenging. One thing that providers often um, ask about is like, how do you have conversations with your clients around cannabis? Because the clients will say it's a legal substance or they use it medicinally as well. And, and one thing that I often kind of 
remind them of is that there are other there are other substances that are legal that also have risks that are involved. And the main one is alcohol, for example. Alcohol, there are, it's a legal drug that many people use, but there are also risks involved with alcohol. There's risk if you drive under the influence, there are risks to your, your physical health, and there are risks to your mental health as well. So as with, as with all substances, it can be helpful to engage in a conversation around what are the pros and cons? Um, what are some of the reasons that you use cannabis? Um, what does it help you with? To try to, to find out, are there functional reasons in the first place? And then you always want to follow that up with, well, what's not so good about it? Or what are some of the negative effects you, you, the cannabis has, has caused for you? Um, what are some of the, the not so good consequences that, that has led to? What kind of problems has it, has it caused for you? And but I would also acknowledge that just like alcohol, not all cannabis use is necessarily a problem, just like alcohol use is a problem. Now, with your client population, it's a little bit different because all of your clients inherently have mental health conditions that put them at greater risk for developing problems related to their cannabis use. Um, but it's always an ongoing conversation. Yeah, I don't think, I don't have the slide in this particular presentation, but there have been studies about um, THC and schizophrenia. And while it is definitely still an area of ongoing research, what the evidence shows is that for, for people who have genetic predispositions to develop schizophrenia, which schizophrenia is a very highly heritable mental health condition. With, for those people who have that genetic predisposition, THC can cause uh, the onset of those symptoms earlier in life. And generally speaking, the younger a person is when they develop those symptoms, generally they tend to be more severe in terms of, um, in terms of their symptomatology. So there is some evidence that shows for those people who are already predisposed to developing schizophrenia, THC can, um, can induce the onset of those symptoms or increase the likelihood. For people who do not have that genetic predisposition, there's no evidence that THC can cause schizophrenia, for example. That's a, that's a really good question. All right, uh, finally, our last two groups I wanna highlight is stimulants. Um, yeah, and uh, I also highlighted a lot of kind of social context that come up. And you're definitely right. In terms of this spectrum here, the prescription stimulants work very similarly. Adderall, um, uh, Ritalin isn't technically a stimulant, but it functions pharmacologically very, very similar. Absolutely. So the thing about stimulants is the effects are extremely similar. The difference is the potency, the duration of action, and how, I mean, in potency, I mean how strong are they, and um, the strength of them, but the acute effects are very, very similar. So um, we'll, we'll talk really briefly about methamphetamine. Methamphetamine, as we highlighted earlier, is one of the most potent it's the strongest and it lasts the longest. 
Uh, methamphetamine can last between eight to 12 hours. And it's, a, it's simply a chemical cousin of other types of stimulants. And then there's many different, we call them amphetamine type stimulants. Uh, but methamphetamine, especially clinically, is probably the most important to be, to be aware of. It's the strongest and it lasts the longest. So it has a um, big bang for your buck. But also, like, like you mentioned, all stimulants increase libido. They increase sex drive. And it's most prominent, especially with methamphetamine, especially among certain populations. We see it's very common amongst men who have sex with men and LGBT individuals, especially gay men. Um, um, meth use is also increased associated with HIV infections as well. Your libido is through the roof. Inhibition dramatically reduced, so you're much less likely to use safer sex practices. Um, you engage in situations that put yourself at risk, especially if you're injecting it. That also increases likelihood for HIV infection. Um, and methamphetamine especially causes a very significant rush, and again, it lasts much longer. Um, the acute effects. Lots of energy, decreased um, fatigue, loss of appetite, euphoria, you feel really good. Um, it can also lead to high blood pressure, rapid heart rate. Um, there are very significant long-term effects, very prominent um, uh, risk of psychosis, for example, that is indistinguishable from uh, a mental health-induced psychosis um, that takes time. Um, memory loss, severe mood disturbances, weight losses can be really significant, and cognitive effects related to memory, focus, and attention. Um, unfortunately, there are no FDA-approved medications that are uh, effective in treating some, uh, stimulant use disorders in particular, unfortunately. Um, cocaine, the effects are similar, but it's much weaker. It's much less potent. And the, the half-life, the duration of action is much, much shorter as well. It's really only an hour or two is the typical half-life. So there tends to be more kind of, while the typical pattern with methamphetamine use is often kind of days of use at a time, these really extended binges, Generally speaking, cocaine is largely used in acute settings, evenings, party settings, and at night for a duration of hours, overnight, for example. But because it doesn't last as long, it's not usually like the multi-day type of binge that we see more with methamphetamine. We talked about muscle already. Um, short duration, quick hit. The acute effects are actually very similar, but they're just not quite as potent. So irritability, anxiety, paranoid thinking can also happen too, higher blood pressure, you can see that as well. Long-term, although quite not as common, it can also lead to symptoms that mimic psychosis as well, although not quite as common as with methamphetamine. 
for the sake of time, I'm going to acknowledge that you have a couple slides on the prescription stimulants, but we're going to skip over these because I want to make sure we have an opportunity to, to do our, our, our wrap up case vignette here. The prescription stimulants pharmacologically work very similar. They're just much less potent. They don't last quite as long. And the dosages are much, much when they're used for the treatment of ADHD, for example, they're much, much lower than recreational dosages um, that people typically use. And I don't think I have a slide on here, but I'll just kind of acknowledge, I'll acknowledge this piece here. There are studies that show for children who have ADHD, if they are treat, they receive treatment for that ADHD, which often involves medications, it actually reduces the likelihood of developing an addiction in adulthood. Um, when children with ADHD do not receive treatment, um, there's data that shows they're more likely to develop an addiction in, in adulthood. Um, so again, we don't have a slide on that, but I wanted to kind of mention that. One of the main kind of medical risks related to stimulants is cardiovascular, high blood pressure, rapid heart rate. Um, these are the main kind of mental health or the physical health symptoms to be, to be mindful of. Um, anxiety or stimulants acutely can also cause symptoms that look like anxiety. We've talked a lot about psychosis, but anxiety also can be increased as well. And then the withdrawal is the opposite. So depression is common, lethargy, loss of uh, pleasure and activities, and hedonia is very common in the withdrawal from stimulants. A really extreme fatigue, uh, loss of motivation, and really significant appetite too. Awesome. Um, <clears throat> lastly is tobacco, um, <clears throat> tobacco. I also don't have, I know you're also all acutely aware our mental health clients disproportionately use tobacco compared to the general population. Also significant in our substance use treatments settings as well. Tobacco has, I don't, also don't have to tell you this, really enormous, um, physical health consequences to it. Um, many different types of cancers. Um, yeah, I'll leave it at that. Okay, and then last, the last couple of things, cot, I'm gonna leave these for you to take a look at if you like. This is really more common in the Middle East and North Africa. So if you work with clients from there, it's a root vegetable that is often chewed. It's kind of similar to the coca leaf in South America that you kind of chew on. Um, gives mild stimulant effects. Awesome. And I wanna acknowledge that you have some slides on hallucinogens. Clinically, these are much less relevant because they don't increase uh, dopamine in the same way as our other substances of abuse. Things like LSD, psilocybin, magic mushrooms, for example. Um, there are some hallucinogens that do, things like uh, PCP or fencyclidine. Um, they're dissociative anesthetics that can cause those effects. Um, but I wanna, these are really interesting, um, but clinically less, less relevant to treatment settings. So I'm going to leave these here.
Um, and then lastly, inhalants. Huffing, sniffing, these are solvents that are often breathed in. There's many different types of household products. Um, they predominantly reduce the amount of oxygen that gets to the brain. A, a lot more prevalent in adolescents, younger kids in particular, because of the access to it. Okay, so I wanna, we talked about a lot. Um, I wanna wrap up just talking a little bit in generalities, thinking about treatment, thinking about engaging people into care. We're gonna wrap up with a couple other just staging conceptualizations here. Like I said at the beginning, we have additional trainings on more specific interventions, ways of engaging people into, in, uh, in treatment processes, but I wanna talk just more broad generalities. So while you're working with your clients, they have mental health diagnoses that, that, that are their primary treatment goals. Um, but, but when they're also using substances, it's really important to kind of figure out what is the connection between those two. Um, are they using substances to manage their mental health symptoms? And if not, why are they using those substances in the first place? And then it's important to kind of figure out where are they in their level of readiness? Um, so people often say, meet the client where they're at. And I'm always like, what does that mean? Unless you were driving to their house <laughs> to physically meet them where they're at. Like, what is that? At? What that means is assessing their awareness of the need to change and basically their readiness for the need to change. And people can have different stages of change or different levels of readiness for their mental health treatment as they are for their substance use. So you might work with clients who are very willing to talk to you about their anxiety, their depression, but they're not willing to stop using cannabis. They're not willing to stop drinking. And it's important to try to gauge where they are. So we, we call this staging or assessing their level of readiness, um, where they are in that process. How many of you have heard of the stages of change before? Yeah, a number of you that Prochesca and Di Clemente, it helps to kind of conceptualize in a, in a behavioral change process, where are they? Um, well, I'll show you kind of a simplified, simplified kind of version of this. There's pre-contemplation, contemplation, termination, action. Many of you have heard of this before. Um, it's basically figuring where are they and what strategies can you engage them with? So one thing, um, I'm not gonna read through every single element on these slides, but you wanna try to figure out where are they? So for a client in pre-contemplation, they're meaning they are unwilling to make a change or they're unaware of the need for change. They're like, I don't have, I don't have a drinking problem. Everything's fine. Or I don't want to talk about it. The goal there, the, the focus, the clinical focus is to raise awareness of, of how their substance use might be impacting their mental health conditions, especially in our DMH context. What other aspects of life are important to them? Trying to, you know, if they really want to get their kids back, how can I connect how they're drinking? might impact their ability to get their kids back. You know, if all the client wants to do is get housing, that's their goal. 
That's their number one priority. I want to try to raise awareness of how their substance use might impact their ability to engage housing. You can see on these slides that highlight some specific strategies, motivational based approaches to explore the pros and cons of their substance use, um, help them with medication adherence, especially with their mental health medications, or if they are using medication assisted treatment, um, helping to explore the pros and cons of their, their behaviors and their behavior change goals, building that therapeutic alliance, and ultimately helping the client raise awareness of how their substance use might be impacting their mental health goals. That's our main kind of focus there. Um, contemplation is kind of the next step. This is where they acknowledge that they have a problem, but they're ambivalent about the need to change. They're like, all right, I, I get my drinking is out of control, but I'm, I don't know if I can do anything about it, or I'm too afraid to do anything about it, or I don't want to do anything about it. Um, that's kind of early persuasion where we're trying to um, help them again, continue to explore the pros and cons of their behavior, help them explore what do they want their life to look like. Um, have they ever tried to cut down in the past? If so, what was good about that? Um, we want to explore their expectations around what recovery looks like. Um, what do they know about the connection between their substance use and their mental health symptoms? If they use less substances, how might that impact their mental health goals? It's basically trying to help work through some of that ambivalence and trying to nudge them towards the change side. Uh, motivational interviewing is a really valuable skill set in this particular phase here, engaging the client, the family. Um, um, and then um, preparation. This is, this is kind of where the client acknowledges they have a problem and it, they want to do something about it. This is a matter of trying to come up with, well, what is the step-by-step -step process of how to get there? What are those SMART goals? The small, achievable, realistic stepping stones that can help them work through and work towards those larger goals. This might be coming up with a plan to cut down or, um, um, a plan to slowly reduce their use, identify barriers that might get in the way, identifying what their triggers are, how to avoid them, what kind of social supports do they need. This Another big area here is helping the client see how relapses in their mental health symptoms can lead to relapses in their substance use. So taking their mental health medications is essential in their substance use goals and vice versa. Um, relapse in substance use often causes relapse in the mental health symptoms as well. Um, so it's, it's preparation, helping them to figure out how are they going to accomplish their goals? and What are those series of steps to help them to get there? Um, and again, I'm not gonna read every, every word on the slide, but I just wanna highlight you have access to all of these. One of the clinical focuses and what may be some of the strategies that you use to help you in, in, in that phase? And then active treatments itself. 
Um, in the DMH context, this is really thinking about what are those substance use interventions to help them accomplish their mental health goals in particular. Um, this is also where um, gr group sessions and cognitive behavioral therapy, um, this is the actual the active treatment phase in and of itself. This might be something that's provided directly at, on, on site or, or in collaboration during, with the, the substance use treatment system as well. And then finally, relapse prevention. In our CBT training, we'll talk a lot more about relapse prevention, so I'm not going to dig into here, but it's just kind of the awareness that for many people, relapse is part of the process and how you think about relapse and how you use it as a learning opportunity is what's most important. Relapse isn't the end of the journey. It's a learning experience. Um, how can you learn from that? How can you reframe what, how you think about relapse? So th this kind of staging is, is really a matter of identifying what is the level of readiness to make these changes happen and adjusting your strategies to align with where they are in the change process. And for many, many clients, it starts out at that pre-contemplation. I don't have a problem. It's not that big of a deal. Um, and helping to raise that awareness. These are often kind of really the foundational building blocks for me. All right. So what I want to do, um, we have a couple other examples of, of, of staging, but I, what I want to do is kind of to kind of wrap up our, what we've talked about here is to bring in a little vignette. And for the sake of time, rather than small groups, I want to do this as a, as a whole group. So we'll do this all together. Um, just to kind of just orient you to what else you have in your slides. We have just really basic key things about helping that can be helpful, thinking about relapse prevention, how relapse is common both for mental health and substance use. I already kind of highlighted most of this already. Relapse in one condition can trigger a relapse in the other. Um, these are just helpful conversations to have. And there's some tips for increasing medication ad adherence as well. Um, these, these can be applicable to mental medications for mental health conditions or medications for substance use disorders. Um, we included some resources that can help you there as well. All right, but I wanna wrap things up with a case. And then what I'm gonna do is you have a worksheet that has this case on here. I'm gonna read through this vignette and then I'm as a whole group, I'm going to ask these follow-up questions. Um, you know, what information do you need to know about Christopher in this vignette? Um, where do you think he is in this staging process? You know, is he at that pre-contemplation persuasion phase? Is he in that contemplation phase? And what might be an important focus of treatment for him? Or how might you engage him in thinking about how his substance use might impact his mental health function? So these are the questions that we're gonna ask and I'll read through, I'll read through our case here. Um, so here we have Christopher, uh, he's a 31 year old auto mechanic. Four years ago, uh, he caused a head on collision while attempting to pass another vehicle. Uh, Christopher survived, but he had a significant back injury and has only been able to work sporadically. 
Um, he was convicted of negligent homicide and placed on probation because of his uh, physical disability. He's on probation for another four years. And if he's convicted of another felony during that time, he will have to serve prison time for his prior offense. Um, Christopher was discharged from the hospital with a variety of medications, including some opioid pain medication. Um, he started feeling he could not face the day without the pain medication. And he needs a little, he needs to drink a little to help him sleep. Um, within three months of the accident, he was doctor shopping for pain medications and even had a friend obtain a prescription for the pain medication from a friend's doctor. Um, in the four intervening years, uh, Christopher's substance use escalated um, and his blunted emotions and the attachment from friends became more profound. Uh, recently, Christopher reported difficulty sleeping due to hearing the friend who died in the accident talking to him at night. Um, he has been obtaining pain pills from a variety of sources. Um, currently, he is at risk of experiencing homelessness due to miswork and an inability to pay rent. What kind of stands out to you about what do you, what information would, what kind of follow up questions would you have for him? Um, where would you try to assess where he's at in the staging process? Like what questions might you ask him? And what do you think the focus might be for uh, his, his engaging him in treatment and conceptualizing the treatment process for him? What kind of stands out to you? Yeah, that's a really interesting question to kind of explore what was his substance use like before this accident, before the head-on collision? Was this something that he has a history of using that kind of escalated after that? Um, was substance use involved in the previous accident? That's a, yeah, that's a great question. I would, I would ask him, what are some of your goals for, for our treatment together? What, 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 what would you like to work on? What's important to you? Um, Want to try to explore, does he think that he has a problem? Where is he with that level of awareness? Yeah, what does a little mean to him? Um, especially if he is mixing alcohol and, and opioids, there's potential risk for overdose. Absolutely. What, tell me about your sleep in the past. What kinds of problems have you had with sleep in the past? What helps you to fall asleep that doesn't involve alcohol? Mm -hmm. Yeah, what, has he ever been in treatment before? Uh, does he have any history of mental health symptoms or mental health treatment? Of course, a family history. Um, Scott, of course, his safety planning is also really important too. Yeah, Fanny, so what does a support system look like? It's a really good question. Who does he live with? What is his living environment like? That's a really good question. Um, he might be is developing tolerance to the, the pain medications and needs more and more. Um, is his increasing pain medication use, is it connected to some of these, um, his difficulty sleeping or the voices that he's starting to hear more recently of the friend who died in the accident? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think a thorough assessment of his physical health is going to be really important. And, um, 
does he need to see a pain management specialist who might be able to work with him on ways of reducing some of his physical pain that he's experiencing? Are the mental health symptoms, is he using substances to cope and to manage those mental health symptoms? Certainly seems like it, but really kind of exploring his level of awareness of that connection. Yeah, helping, helping him learn some good sleep hygiene and, and uh, use what, learning him alternative ways to help him get to sleep, absolutely. If there was something else that could help him sleep, would he re consider reducing his alcohol use? Great question, Delia. Nice, yeah, I like that kind of thinking at strength that are there, resiliency that, are there, that, that might be there as well, can all absolutely be a motivator. Um, what's bringing him into treatment in the first place? Absolutely, exploring all of those as well can also help gain some insight into his level of awareness, can gain some insight into the staging of where he's at, can also inform what kind of interventions might you want to try to engage him with. Um, awesome. And if he does need some help with his opioid use, there are also some medications that can be really helpful for that as well. Um, that's a topic for a future training, but it's another tool in the tool chest that might be helpful for him in this context. So unfortunately, I am out of time for today. So thank you all so much for joining us today. You have a good rest of your afternoon and a good weekend.